Can everyone hear me? Am I on? Um, I have to apologize in advance because if you can't tell, I'm uh, struggling with allergies this morning. I, uh, yesterday, or was it, okay, it was two nights ago, I was working on moving a, uh, a couch from my parents' house to the house where I'm going to be living, and uh, I sneezed like eight or nine times in a row at some point when I was moving it, and ever since then, things haven't been quite the same. And yesterday, I took one of those 24-hour allergy pills, Allegra, I took nasal spray, and I took prescription strength eye drops, and still, it was like they had no power over this beast that my, <laughs> I had encountered. So, I, I don't know what it is. I, is anybody having allergies worse than normal? Anybody? Okay, maybe, yeah, maybe it's, it has nothing to do with the couch. I don't know, but it's pretty bad. So, I apologize if I'm sniffly and that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, for those of you who were at the membership meeting last week, you know that this is a special week for me because next Saturday I'm getting married. Uh, that's finally happening. <laughs> so for the next two Sundays, I will not be here. Um, I, uh, I'm actually going to be taking four weeks off from preaching, and, uh, but I will be here uh, for the, the third and fourth week. So, but we, we have a good lineup uh, of uh, guest speakers that are going to continue our Scenes and Acts series. Uh, several of them are involved in campus ministry at UConn, so I really hope that you guys enjoy uh, hearing from them. Uh, a couple other quick, quick comments. I wanted to say that I wish I, I could have invited the whole church uh, to the wedding, uh, but the way we ended up doing it, we're, we're having it in uh, Sarah's grandfather's backyard, which meant we had to rent a big tent in order to, to do it, and that tent has a limited capacity, you know. So anyway, um, but... Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I apologize for that. Um, and secondly, I just really appreciate uh, your prayers making this transition into married life and moving and all that stuff. It's a lot. Uh, all at once, and it, it's definitely, um, there's a lot of possible stressors, so I just really appreciate your prayers. We both appreciate your prayers uh, during this time, but before I take my wedding leave of absence, I have one more sermon to do in Scenes and Acts, one more dramatic moment to look at, and what we're looking at this week is the story of a riot, um, an angry riot, which is in response to the gospel message. So Paul and his apostles, uh, Paul and the apostles, have been preaching in the area, and there's something that they have been saying that's leading uh, people in Ephesus to get very upset, and it leads to an angry mob. Now, uh, sometimes we as Christians make people angry unnecessarily. Sometimes uh, we're too judgmental, sometimes we don't listen well, sometimes we're insensitive, so sometimes people are angry, and the fault is really with us. It's not with them. But other times, we can gen generate a negative response simply by doing what's right, okay? Simply by telling the truth. And uh, that is what is going on here, okay? Paul and the apostles have simply been telling the truth. They've simply been doing what's right, and it has generated this very angry response. And we need to keep that in mind. Sometimes that is what happens when we tell the truth. Sometimes when we poke the hornet's nest, they come out and sting us. 
Okay, so what was the truth that they were saying that was so upsetting, and why was it so upsetting? Well, uh, let's look at the first part of the passage. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Acts chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 23. Acts 19, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, that was, the way was a way of referring to the early Christian church. It was called the way. There arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen, in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are not gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. All right, so what was the truth that was being proclaimed that was so upsetting? It was this. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Basically, idols are a waste of time. Now, like I said, sometimes we as Christians get people angry unnecessarily. Uh, but there are certain things that we have to be faithful to, to proclaim whether or not they're popular or not. And one of those things is we believe that there is one true God, and that God is not an inanimate chunk of matter. Uh, our God is transcendent over the material world. He's not something that can be measured or weighed, and because of that, his presence is not limited to any particular place uh, or location. God is omnipresent, right? God is everywhere. And that idea, that idea is one of those core elements of our faith that we really can't budge on. Now, of course, we have to respect the fact that, of course, that people have the freedom to believe what they're going to believe, okay? We can't force people uh, to think something that they, they don't think. But what I'm saying is that if we are presenting our beliefs to someone, this, this idea that there is one true God and that God is not a chunk of inanimate matter, that is an essential part of what we believe. Uh, we, can't, we can't not think that and still, believe, still say that we're maintaining the essence of our faith. Now, why is that truth so upsetting to people? Why can't the Ephesians who disagree simply say, oh, Paul, you know, you have your religious beliefs, we have our religious beliefs, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Why can't they do that? And the reason, of course, is because the more people who, believe, who agree with Paul, the more their business suffers. Because they make idols. And if people aren't worshipping idols, then they're not making money. Right? So you might say the gospel message is bad for business in Ephesus. Or another way of putting it is this is a message that upsets people's economic interests. And that is the number one reason why this riot is about to happen. But there's a second reason too, which is not economic but religious. Uh, remember, Demetrius says, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited um, and, and she will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
So what Demetrius does to is he, he, he appeals to the religious devotion of these men, right? Artemis is going to be robbed of her divine majesty. But I want us to notice something here, okay? Religious concern is, is part of the appeal that Demetrius is making here. But is it really the primary concern? I don't think so. Because if religious concern was the primary concern, Demetrius wouldn't have just gathered the craftsmen who make money off of the production of these idols. Right? He would have gathered all kinds of different people from Ephesus. But no, he specifically gathers the craftsmen, the people who benefit financially. So it's pretty clear what the primary motivation is here. And what I want us to notice is that just like back then, underneath a lot of what appears to be religious concern is economic concern. And a lot of the time, economic concern masquerades as religious concern. For example, there are some politicians out there who will appeal to our concern for Christian values or our concern that God be recognized in our nation. But for some of these politicians, underneath the surface, what they're really concerned about is money and power. And they see appealing to religious concerns as a way of getting money and power from the religious segment of society. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to accuse all politicians or even any particular politician right now of doing that. But I'm just encouraging us, okay, to be discerning and to be wise because underneath a lot of religious concern is economic concern. And we have to be very careful not to let people manipulate our genuine religious concern in order to advance their economic concern. Got to be very careful. All right. So Demetrius appeals both to the economic interest and the religious interest of these people, and he says that Paul's preaching is a threat to both of those things. And this is how the people respond in verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so let's stop for a moment and take in this scene. So the, craftsman out, the craftsman's outrage has spread throughout the city. And it's resulted in this angry mob that is so angry and so big that Paul's disciples don't even want to let him go near it for fear that the mob's going to kill him. And people are getting involved who don't even know what's going on. Like, I heard you guys laugh at that, which I like, because I laughed at it when I read it too. You know, most of the people did not even know why they were there. And I think it's very important for us to 
to stop on that line for a moment and think about that because it reminds us that sometimes people oppose the gospel, or anything really, not for clearly defined reasons, but just because their tribe opposes it. Okay, the group that they identify with opposes that thing, and so they do too. So, so far we've identified two things in this story that lead people to oppose the gospel, economic concerns and religious concerns. The third thing that we can add onto that list is just pure tribalism. All right? There are people in the crowd who are angry just because their tribe is angry. They don't fully understand the situation, but they know they're on the side of the Ephesian culture. They are Ephesians, so great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when a Jew gets up to try and explain the situation, they just think, oh, this is a Jew, so we're not even going to listen to the Jew. And what we have to realize is this sort of tribalism, it happens every day today too, right? It's not, it's not just a relic of the past. It happens anytime we assume that the group that we are associated is correct, even though we don't really know anything about the situation. So take, for example, you know, something like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, there, are, there are people who are informed about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and have strong views about that. But there's also a lot of people who are not Israeli, who are not Palestinian, who know nothing about the history of that area, but for whatever reason, they have aligned themselves with one side in, in that conflict. And their, their opinion does not come from knowledge of the facts. It doesn't come from thinking carefully about the issue, but it comes from the fact that at some point they aligned themselves with a certain tribe and they came to a decision about where their feelings and their emotions are going to lie. Just like the Ephesians here are aligned with the Ephesian tribe. And because of that, they thought, oh, we're supposed to be angry right now. And so they joined in the angry mob, even though they didn't really understand why. And that is a picture for us of how powerful tribalism can be, right? It can turn people against messengers of the gospel even though they don't know why. So, we as followers of Christ have to be very careful not to fall victim to that tribalistic mindset. We have to be on guard against that. But we also need to be sensitive to the fact that there are going to be people who oppose us and what we say about Christ. And it's not going to be for rational reasons. It's going to be for reflexive, irrational, tribalistic reasons. Just because the tribe that they associate with doesn't like Christianity, doesn't like the Christian faith. And you know, the best way to deal with that is not to just act tribalistic back. You know, what if the apostles had just gotten together their own crowd and yelled back, in response to great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Jesus of the Jews, for two hours, back and forth. Do you think that would have done any good? I don't think so. Probably wouldn't, wouldn't have done anything good at all. Probably would have just escalated the conflict. So the response to tribalism is not to respond with more tribalism, but the best thing to do to bring somebody out of tribalism is to listen it's to treat them graciously and to calmly and rationally, as best as we can, explain why we, we think the way we do. 
And that can be a very hard thing to do when you're interacting with somebody that has that tribal mindset. But really, it's the only way to help bring them out of that. Not just to yell back, greatest Jesus of the Jews. So, this crowd's tribal fervor is very, very strong, and it's so strong that they repeat this mantra, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours, which, if you assume that it takes about five seconds to say great is Artemis of the Ephesians, that is 1,440 repetitions of great is Artemis of the Ephesians, I mean, it must have been downright hypnotic by the 500th repetition, right? And what this crowd has become is just this angry, irrational, idolatrous machine, right, that just keeps chugging along. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this, this machine is keeping people from considering the gospel. It's keeping people from the truth. And what I want us to think about this morning is what is the fuel that that machine is running on? What's keeping it chugging along? And that's really what we've been talking about so far, but I just want to say it again. I really think that the primary fuel that's going in this engine is economic interest. Yes, religious interest plays a part, but as I already talked about, that religious interest, it's almost like it's tacked on as a justification for the economic interest, right? Oh, we're going to lose money from our idols. Uh, and, oh yeah, uh, Diana, she's going to, her, her uh, Artemis, her, her glory is going to be robbed of her, right? It, it's, it's almost like the religious interest is giving a transcendent purpose to what's really just economic interest. That's at the heart of it. And also, as I talked about, tribalism is a factor. But what tribalism really does is it just helps people who don't really have a dog in the fight to suddenly align with those who have the economic interest. Right? It's the economic interest that makes people angry, and then it's tribalism that allows people who aren't really that angry to start with to then share that anger. So the real fuel here for this machine is the is the economic interest, the real fuel for this machine that leads to spiritual blindness is this desire for money, this concern for money. There are people who really want the Ephesians to keep worshiping idols, and those people have a vested economic interest in the gospel message not permeating this society. You know, it's possible that some of those craftsmen would have been open to hearing what Paul had to say if it weren't for the fact that that message hurt their wallets but the concern for money kept them from spiritual truth. And so what I want us to see in this story is a warning to us. And that warning is this. Concern for money can keep us from believing what is true and doing what's right. Concern for money can keep us from believing what's true and doing what's right. It's kind of the big idea this morning. Uh, you know, I think one perfect example of this is the slave trade that Great Britain and America participated in up until the 1800s, um, which, of course, is something that many Christians participated in and defended during that time. And what was at the root of that defense? What was the motivating factor that led so many people to marshal whatever arguments they could in favor of slavery? 
Well, some people might say, oh, it's because there's some passages in the Bible that seem to, to, to cast slavery in a positive light. Uh, and some people might say, um, sorry, well, yeah, some people might try to argue that, or some people might try to argue from some, some sort of theological justification that slavery is okay. But really, I think the reason that those arguments were marshaled and used is because underneath it was this economic interest that was really fueling it. You know, you can take a few passages in Scripture and misrepresent them, to, to, to make your argument, but the question is, why are you interested in using passages of Scripture to defend that particular view? Is it really because you're interested in following what, what God wants for your, for your life, or is it really because there's this economic interest underneath uh, your interpretation? So racism and bad arguments from, from Scripture were tools that were used in order to satisfy the primary motivating factor, which was the love of money economic concern. In Britain, uh, there was a man who led the movement that successfully abolished slavery, and he, his name was William Wilberforce. And his passion and conviction to end slavery was an outgrowth of something that he called the great change. And the great change for him was the, the point in his life where he decided to follow Jesus, and to make his life about doing God's will. And one of the things that happened when he had the great change in his life was he suddenly came to believe that the slave trade was a sin against God and was an incredible dishonoring of God's image in, in, every, human, in, in every human being that was a slave. And he believed that stopping the slave trade was his God-given destiny. But when Wilberforce first started to speak out to try and get the public to realize just how horrible slavery was, you know, about how people who were brought over from Africa were stuffed in, in ships like sardines in a can and, you know, trying to get them to realize just how terrible it was, people argued against him by saying, well, slavery is an economic necessity. Huge parts of the British economy relied on slavery. And those business people that relied on slavery um, they had representatives in government who didn't want to lose their votes. So it took 20 years of Wilberforce leading this charge to abolish slavery before he finally saw success. Now, most of us today, we look back on slavery and we say, how could people have been okay with that? How could they have justified that? But that's easy for us to say because our economic interest has nothing to do with slavery. But what history reveals is a scary truth, which is that even relatively good people can fail to believe what is true and do what is right when it affects their wallets. Unfortunately, another area where concern for money can keep people from doing what's right is ministry. Um, you know, there, there are some pastors out there who will not say what they believe God wants them to say because they're afraid that if they do, they'll lose the support of their congregations and they'll, the giving in their congregations will stop. And so instead of having a prophetic voice and trying to speak the truth, some pastors will just say whatever they, they think they need to say in order to keep the congregation happy. Now, 
personally, I have to say, I am very thankful that at this church, I've always felt like I have been able to say whatever God puts on my heart without suffering hostility. And just to be clear, there's a difference between disagreement and hostility. You know, There's room for disagreement. Hostility is something else. But I'm very thankful that in, in this church that's been the, the case. But here's the thing. See, I, I certainly hope and pray that if I was in a situation where I felt like I had to choose between speaking the truth that I believe God wanted me to say or suffering hostility, I, I pray that I would choose to suffer the hostility and still speak the truth in as gracious and as loving a way as possible, of course, but still speak the truth. But I can understand and feel sympathy for those who sacrifice their prophetic voice so that they don't lose their job, so that they still have a source of income. But at the same time, as I feel that sympathy and I understand where they're coming from, I want to encourage them. I, I want to I say, we cannot let concern for money keep us from doing what's right. Because if we do, though in the short run things might seem beneficial, in the long run, the church suffers. Right? So what I'm trying to do here is to just give a couple ex examples that show us the power that concern for money has and how it can lead us to not believe what is true and not do what is right. And what I want to encourage all of us to do this week is just to reflect on that question ourselves. Okay, In my own life, how might my concern for money be keeping me from believing what is true and doing what is right? You know, if concern for money can lead to the instantaneous formation of an angry mob that repeats a mantra for two hours, and if it can lead people to justify slavery, and if it can lead people in ministry not to be honest, it can do all kinds of terrible things, right? It's something that can affect every one of us. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. Sometimes the concern for money leads us away from doing the right thing in less dramatic ways, but still significant ways. For example, uh, it can lead us to pursue a career uh, purely for financial re reasons, rather than because that's where our interests and gifting and calling lie. Uh, about seven years ago, I was trying to figure out what I should do for a career, and I ordered this book called Should I Be a Lawyer? And I read a little bit of it, and I thought, no, I, I definitely should not be a lawyer. Now, not that there's anything wrong with being a lawyer done well. A lawyer is a perfectly honorable profession. We need lawyers. But I could tell when I started to read about the things that lawyers do that that is not where my heart was. I would not want to do that. And at that point, I thought, well, if I was to pursue this career, the reason I would be doing it is for the financial and status benefits that it brings. Not because it's where my interests actually are. And thankfully, I chose not to pursue being a lawyer. It would not have been right for me. But I can see how if concern for money had been a little higher in my list of concerns when it came to career, I don't think lawyer would have been taken off the table as, close, as, as quickly uh, as it was. Because lawyer was really the one truly lucrative career that I thought I might have a shot at. You know, I, I'm not a math and science person at all, so I can never be an engineer, and I'm too squeamish to be a medical doctor. 
so I thought, well, lawyer though, that's, I, could probably, I could probably do that. But did I have a sense of calling for law? No. Did I think about law in my free time? No. But I can see how if my concern for money had just been a little bit higher, it could have led me in a direction that wasn't really right for me. Of course, concern for money can also lead us away from what's right in other ways. Uh, it can lead us to participate in businesses that are uh, unethical and um, that take advantage of people. And we, we think, well, I've just got to keep going along with this, not raising a fuss, because I've got to pay my bills. It can also lead us to spend an inordinate amount of time at our jobs. You know, so much time that there's no time left over for our families. And we may end up tolerate, tolerating that work-life imbalance out of concern for money. We may end up entirely missing our children's lives out of concern for money. And I'm not just talking about the concern that we have to just pay our bills, but I'm talking about, you know, the concern for money that we might have because we, we have to have the really big house or we have to have the fancy vacations every year. You know, keep in mind, if you have a choice, your kids benefit much more from having you around than from that fancy vacation once a year that you're able to pay for because you're always at work. Anyway, okay, we could come up with so many examples, but... Again, I just want to encourage us to think, okay, how might my concern for money keep me from believing what's right, believing what's true, and doing what's right? And if there are areas where we can see that the concern for money is having that effect, we have to remind ourselves that God wants me to trust in him more than he wants me to trust in money. When our concern for money leads us away from doing what's right, we're showing that we trust in money more than we trust in God. And that was one of those things that Jesus specifically warned about. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he makes it clear what he's talking about. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, just to clarify, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about money at all. I mean, we have to work whether we want to or not. We have to be able to provide for our families. We should strive to be as financially independent as possible. But our concern for money should never eclipse our concern to do what's right, to do God's will. And if it does, that concern for money can lead us to some very dark places. And like the crowd in this story, it can turn us into a mindless, unhappy, obsessive machine. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is this money. This money that I cannot live without. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, how does this story end? What happens with this riot? Well, I'll tell you one thing that doesn't happen. Paul and the apostles don't say, I guess we're going to have to cut out the part of our message that hurts these people's economic interest. No, they don't, they don't change that. What happens is that a city official gets, gets up in front of the crowd and he makes a little speech. And keep in mind, the city official is not a Christian. 
He's just somebody that's charged with keeping the peace in the area. And he gets up and he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the essence of it. He says, you guys are all upset because these Christians, you say, are upsetting the social order. But you're upsetting the social order because you're making a big riot. And, you know, if we, wanna, if we don't want to get in trouble with the officials at Rome, you guys need to calm down. So if you have a legitimate problem with these Christians, deal with it in the courts. But please go home. And it works. The crowd disperses and they leave. It's kind of a boring end to the riot. But I think there's a good lesson for us to learn from it, which is this. When we are faithful and we prioritize God's will over money, things usually work out. Yeah, there are times where we have to make sacrifices, but a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, when we prioritize God over money, things don't just work out in the long run, but they work out in the short run, too. The guarantee is that in the long run, it it works out better, right? But sometimes, a lot of the time, even in the short run, it works out better. Because the things that we're afraid of don't usually end up happening. A lot of the time, our concern for money is rooted in fear. Like, there are things that we're afraid are going to happen if we don't obsess over the money. But so much of the time, what we're afraid of just doesn't happen. The worst-case scenario in this situation would have been that the mob got so angry that they went out and they killed the apostles, right? And after about two hours of them shouting, it looks like that's a legitimate possibility. But that's not what happens. The crowd just disperses. And so much of the time in our lives, that is what ends up happening. What we fear doesn't happen. It just, things turn out okay. So, trust God more than money, and let things fall into place from there. Let's pray. Lord, it can be very challenging for us to keep our priorities in the right order, uh, for us to be more concerned about doing your will and doing what's right than um, making the money. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to order those priorities correctly. Father, that we would seek you and your will first and let things fall into place from there. And Lord, we know that it is more challenging in practice than it is in theory. But Father, we ask that you would uh, renew our hearts and our minds in order to help us to live that out as much as possible. And we thank you for your grace that gives us strength to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.